Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 142. Hey guys, long time no talk. So, uh, funny thing happened last time we recorded. The 11.3 came out pretty quickly. I don't know if we actually got our episode out before it was released or if they beat us. I think we, I think we did because we thought it was going to come out when the event happened, but it wasn't like a couple days afterwards. I forget. <laughs> it's all kind it of. It was around weird. the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, Everything's kind of a blur. Things are busy. And in the U.S., it's a tax crunch time. I've been working on that, other things. So, yeah, good times. <laughs> but uh, some new stuff coming down the pipe in, in uh, with Swift. And that that actually is out, right, with 11.3 and Xcode 9.3? We've got Swift 4.1. Yep, yeah. That uh, added a, a few... Um nice uh enhancements to some of the decodable uh features uh can now generate equatable and hashable uh for value types it doesn't work on classes it's got to be a, a fairly basic straightforward value type that contains primitives or well primitives probably not the right word but uh everything underneath needs to also be equatable and hashable Okay, so it would either be a, a scalar value, like say an integer float array of characters or something like that, plus anything that already implements the equatable protocol, right? Maybe comparable. Yeah, but it has to be a struct or an enome. Can't be a class. Okay, but you could have a string in there and it would still in your struct and then it would still be able to generate it. Yes. Okay. So did you guys all fight over who got to do the commit where you removed all that code in your respective <laughs> workplaces? Not yet. Yeah, honestly, I don't I don't mind writing custom equatable functions. In some in some ways you can take shortcuts that make your app a little faster than what the code that's generated would be. Like maybe if you have a data class and all your objects always have a unique ID and you're not going to mutate those classes, then you could probably just get away with writing a pretty simple equatable. You do have to be careful because it can bite you in the butt occasionally when you're stuffing things into a dictionary and you're wondering why these two two objects that are different aren't actually different in the eyes of the system. Yeah, it's nice that we have a default implementation now. If we were to be using Swift, that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You can use a data class in Kotlin if you want to. They do it there, too, for objects, since there is no such thing as a struct in the, the Java land. Yeah, I have used those. Those are nice. Uh, one thing I also noticed that Xcode 9.3 brought us was it dropped support for, like, Swift. Uh, I don't know, some old version of Swift. And apparently, <laughs> we had an SDK that was with it. Do you guys know which version it dropped? I didn't see that in the release notes, but um, in earlier versions of Xcode 9, you could do Swift 3 and Swift 4. So you can still do Swift 3 and Swift 4, from what I could tell, but it's like a maybe it's Swift 3 2 it dropped, but you can still do Swift 3 3. I'm not entirely sure which one, but 
for whatever reason, I had an SDK that was written in that. Uh, so we're waiting for them before we can jump to Xcode 9.3. We're stuck on 9.2 for now, but won't name names on companies who do that. But I guess that's why that's why we're hoping Swift 5 is going to bring us the uh, stable ABI. So is this SDK a binary SDK? Mm-hmm. It's a Swift framework that we that we were handed. Yep. Yeah. So who? Well, I don't, don't want to say name. <laughs> but I'm just like, who the heck is out there distributing a binary SDKs? Well, it, written it worked. In Swift? It worked for a year, but yeah, they, yeah, they've told me that both a they are updating to a newer uh, to a later version of Swift, and they're also working on a Objective C SDK that is uh, feature comparable to the Swift one. Although it seems like the wrong time to do that. I guess, <laughs> I mean, I would just wait till yeah. September and just do an, an update. But hey. although we, we could just be playing the, the football, Lucy, Charlie Brown game with Apple again, and it might be Swift six. So who knows? Right. But that, uh, that's a uh, gutsy, I guess, to ship a Swift binary <laughs> SDK, but it's, it's also pretty, pretty terrible to not have updated to at least Swift four. I mean, these they, people they, that... they said it'll be out by the time this goes live. I think so. Yeah, but Swift four has been I... seven months ago, and they knew about it, you know, ten months ago. I, I've come to terms with it already, and we're dealing with it <laughs> as we can. <laughs> yeah, well, but yeah, it, it's it's somewhat frustrating, right? And and it makes me feel really great about our Objective C that equatable is all this stuff, our equals and our hash code stuff is all not changed. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's good. Code from nine years ago still compiles. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you can write the code basically just one time and keep shipping that binary and just maybe update it for whatever new platforms come out. Yeah. But choosing a Swift SDK kind of means you're promising to keep current with Swift releases so that your users aren't being held back by you. And those guys are definitely breaking that promise. Yeah, a lot of the people who are like, oh, we want new features in Swift. We don't care about uh, stable ABI. Uh, they weren't they weren't people who who wrote SDKs. That was always like, yeah, those people would really like it if if Swift was had a stable ABI, so they could actually do that and be somewhat legitimate without having to deal with all this stuff. Like, I don't know what you do. Like, like didn't Dropbox switch theirs over to Swift at some point? I remember. They, do they have like a multiple versions? Like, if you're using this version of Xcode or Swift, then download this. Otherwise, use this. Or what do they do? I know they did switch to Swift, and I don't know if they have a... Uh... That might have been the open source layer, and maybe if you use, um, use, use a build system, it would be fine. Uh, CocoaPods or um, Carthage. I can't imagine it would be the binary that they're shipping. Yeah, it looks like there it is open source, like you mentioned, so maybe people, yeah, you just do a CocoaPod. Or whatever, but their code hasn't updated. Let's see, five months ago is the latest commit. So, well, their official SDK on their website only mentions. Well, it does mention Objective C, and they have a Swift version, Swifty Dropbox, which is open source on GitHub. 
which don't get me wrong is is fine but there's there's you know stuff you have to deal with when you are are doing that yeah that would be kind of messy because you would have to maintain parallel versions and if you have a bug in your sdk then you have to update it in all those different parallel versions although didn't we didn't we get um swift static libraries with this xcode version i think it was an earlier version of x39 um, i'd have to look at the release notes uh, but there were some updates related to that i think the cocoa pods just released support for maybe that's static what I libraries i know someone just did yeah. well, any other cool cool goodies with swift 4.1 for the uh initiated yeah, so Codable now supports uh, encoding, decoding strategies. So instead of assuming camel case, you can support snake case or uh, write your own uh, encoding, decoding strategies. And by snake case, you mean insane case, right? Uh, lowercase separated by underscores. Yeah, insane case. <laughs> insane case. I'm not opinionated. No, not at all. <laughs> so snake case is the insane case one? Yeah. It's... That's that's weird coming from a Ruby developer. Or a previous Ruby person. I should say. I've written languages written in several different languages over my years. And yeah, it's fair. I write you in liked Ruby they... for a while though. <laughs> I did. I liked Python for a while too. It's a great language. Hey, uh, Python's coming back. Yeah. It's big in the the data processing world these days and machine learning as well i believe yeah yeah more in that realm the ai like tensorflow and, and things but i don't know if you guys saw this but uh tensorflow their latner apparently is having his uh swifty influence over there at google and they're writing a version of tensorflow using swift or making swift a like first-class citizen rather than just binding to the libraries. It's funny. Yeah. So I'm not really sure if they're rewriting it all. It was, I didn't have time to read the full post, but they're going to treat Swift like a first-class citizen rather than say something like how they do with Python, where you just import the DLL or shared library into your uh, Python VM. So what's, what's better about the new Swift 4.1 codable again? You can support different strategies for encoding and decoding. So if you, you don't have oh, control yeah, over the API, you can support other conventions. Otherwise, you have to uh, basically yeah, roll yeah, your yeah. own. Hence our snake case discussion. Yeah. <laughs> so can you, is it, do you just have a list of ones that you can choose from now, or can you do a custom? You can do a custom strategy. one. I haven't looked into it in any detail, but. Uh, my understanding is you can use one of the two supported or write your own. I like to separate things with bang operators, so. <laughs> Double colon. Snake stuff. Hyphens, yeah. dots. I think you still have to have at least valid JavaScript for your JSON objects. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anything can be valid Overrated. JavaScript these days, right? <laughs> um, there were also some updates for Xcode 9.3. In addition to Swift 4.1, uh, there's now a command line tool for generating code coverage reports called xccov. And it's I pretty cool. I believe you can pick different <laughs> output formats. Yeah, I've I've tried to mess with that before, and 
it was there's all kinds of hoops you had to jump through to do it. And I remember it got added to Xcode server at one point, but I guess this is kind of the command line version so that like everyone else who, you know, runs their Xcode uh, builds on, you know, Jenkins or or whatever CI server they use can actually do it easily now. Not buddy build. Nice. Not buddy build. Well, you could still be running on buddy build, but yeah, not many people. Yeah. Not for much longer, I guess. That was, and when you did that, I remember, was it you that set that up where we worked together? Uh, or oh, it's possible. Been. Yeah, I think I may have done that. <laughs> and then the the coverage it broke reports, all the time. Yeah. Well, the coverage reports were in a format that was Xcode specific, and well, they the, yeah they generated like LCOV files, like LLVM coverage files, and then you had to do some crazy Python script to convert that to like an XML format that there were lots of tools that would read. Okay. So that was, yeah, it was, it was fun figuring that mm-hmm. out. <laughs> I'm glad that people don't have that pain anymore or will not soon. Yeah. Finally coming up in the world. And I think there is some, some enhancements to, to parallel builds in Xcode 9.3. Although I haven't been able to try them out and I've been doing some great builds recently. So I'm sure whatever it is, is going to be way better than what I'm dealing with right now. So Looking forward to that parallel build <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Gradle is just a giant hammer when you need a fly swatter. It can do so much, but it's so heavy and so big. It's really hard to understand sometimes. So what else we got? Uh, this one I missed, but uh, Sam, I think you pointed out that 11.3 added support for progressive web apps in Safari and web views. Yeah, I guess that they can like the old style apps where you could bookmark them and put them onto your home screen. You know how you could do that in Safari and just kind of launch the web page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, the original, uh, the original app store for iOS and, and uh, iOS 1.0 when it was just iPhone OS. Um, so yeah, they can help now do that kind of thing uh, a lot better. I guess the, the code is still is stored the web pages are stored on the device instead of just being a, a straight up link. Uh, you don't you get access to some platform things like uh, you can still do geolocation, some of the sensors, the camera, and Apple Pay, which might be important. One of the other things that's interesting to me too is that it does support WebAssembly. So I think that was added in iOS 11 or one of the uh, later revs of iOS 11, but that that to me is kind of, uh, I don't know if it's going to spell the, the end of apps. Like uh, I, think, just... I think the answer is no, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't see maybe it spelling the end of, say, card apps or games. At least not yet, but if, uh, say, I'm a retailer like Starbucks or something, Ooh, I can never see Starbucks using this. (laughs) Really? You think so? You can, say, have a pretty good interface on your web app, and it uh, looks good. It doesn't have to, like, Starbucks app doesn't really look native. And 
if you're actually rendering a UI in WebAssembly, that would be cross-platform and near native speeds, and you don't have to deal with all the garbage that is JavaScript. Then see, but then you're then you're gonna get the kind of the cross-platform main Re- React Native style app, if you will. It's it's gonna look it's gonna be it's better than just like a. Well, you know some of the the older versions of cross-platform apps, but it's yeah. it's still a web app. More like the cross-platform Flutter version, where you have everything is material design, because React Native at least does make you write the view layer per platform. Well, but they do have cross-platform like navigation uh, things that that aren't. I mean, you can you can write like a hamburger menu navigation app with. React Native or WebAssembly and probably look fairly similar or Flutter one. I mean, it's it's just not going to be right up there with the native apps. You're not going to be able to like re- reproduce the you know the functionality of a tab bar. You know, something simple as that. It's just not gonna not gonna be the same. Like I I can't imagine like consumer apps using the WebAssembly stuff. Uh, I would say that this adds. Um, for those that aren't familiar with what a progressive web app is, it, in addition to access to more of the platform services, there's also the concept of service workers, so being able to offload processes as well as a cache API for working offline. So kind of the big deal here is getting closer to that point where people who are building these progressive web apps can finally have a truly cross-platform solution. Uh, but looking at the support charts, looks like there's still a bunch of gaps there. So it's going to be a little while, perhaps, before we see progressive web apps take over. Yeah, I don't see them taking over top-tier apps. But I do see them as, say, credible, credible alternatives to having a mobile website that you use. Um, you know, retailers, I think... They're a great candidate for Let's, for having PWAs, especially the ones that are less frequent, like a yeah, like a Starbucks or a restaurant uh, where you're going there on a regular basis. Having that app installed on your phone makes a lot of sense, but uh, something a little less frequent. Um, <laughs> it'd be nice to have. Yeah, well, have that like, same level of experience without having to install the app. Right. I mean, you can store about. 50 megabytes of files offline on iOS. Uh, if the user doesn't use your app for a while, the OS will just delete the files, kind of kind of like in a way, say, the Apple TV does with, with its caching system, because nothing is actually stored. You don't In the Apple TV, you don't actually have access to the local storage. You can only put stuff in caching folders. So... I don't know. I just feel like there's a, a certain tier of apps that this would apply to. Conferences would be another great example. Um, so, I mean, you you could do a pretty good app for a conference with this, but I still think, like, in any scenario, almost a native app is going to be better. It may not be cheaper. Uh, you know, it may not be the same bang for your buck, but, I mean, at least for a while, I, I, I guess I'm still skeptical of it. Oh, you know, maybe you get the best experience. Maybe the likely targets to be replaced with progressive web apps are the 
ones that are currently third-party template apps. Ooh, but wouldn't, uh... wouldn't you rather have a native third-party template app if it's a good template than a progressive web app? I mean, this is a yeah. this is an argument we have like every time there's some new cross-platform <laughs> solution or whatever. It's like, well, would it be better if it was that? <laughs> I, I think I probably would, but then you've got the whole issue of the Apple review process and things like that. You know, for companies that want to avoid that or can't maintain it. But then again, I would say that most of those companies probably aren't building their own websites either. So. Yeah, it's probably it would have to be a third party anyway. All right. So one kind of letdown uh, that we had this week was looks like the Mac Pros are not coming out until 2019. Yeah, this is a big bummer. <laughs> I had I had my money ready to go credit card in buying position. Uh <laughs> My my MacBook Pro died a couple weeks ago, so I'm like, all right, give me the Mac Pro. When's it coming? And after this news came out, I'm like, all right, well, it looks like I need to either use my Hackintosh, which is becoming kind of flaky again, or I actually bought a dual display port KVM to get me through the next year or so, see how that goes. I'm hoping it works with my 5K monitor, but I don't have much hope that it will. <laughs> It'll do it just in 1080p, and you'll hate it. Well, it says each of the Display Ports support like the the 4K at 60 hertz. Hmm. So if that's the case, I'm hoping you know the the weird monitor that I have is a 5K at 60 hertz display, but over two older Display Port like connectors, like the big the big ones that came like this. This originally launched when the the, the last time the Mac Pro updated. <laughs> so you would have two like mini display port to display port cables plugged into it. Hmm. So I have an adapter that takes a Thunderbolt 3 to two display ports. And I'm hoping that'll work with a new laptop. <laughs> Wish me luck on that one, but <laughs> Yeah. So are you gonna wait till June to see if they release a new MacBook Pro? Or are you just gonna go out and buy last June's MacBook Pro? Well, so I, I bought the 13-inch MacBook Pro for my wife and asked her if I could use it until new MacBook Pros come out, and then I'll make a decision. Maybe I'll keep this one and get her a new laptop, or if they're that much better, then, I mean, a 13-inch touch bar MacBook Pro isn't a bad laptop for her to use either. So we'll see. We'll see what happens in June. But, yeah, it's, I mean... It seems like they could have just slapped a Xeon in a box and called it a day. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what, what the... I'm scared of what this new, quote, modular, unquote, you know, thing is going to be. Because they don't seem content to ship just a box where you could plug components into. That seems like that's not what we're going to get. I have to ma imagine that the the demand for desktops is really low these days and a laptop yeah and when you can get a cheap windows laptop or a chromebook for a few hundred dollars and i think even inside most large organizations rather than issuing desktops they're these days just doing laptops because it's not really that much more expensive and you get a lot of portability gains i think the 
I think you're right looking at the market overall, but there are definitely specific niches within uh, the the computer market that demand a pro uh, a pro Mac or you know a pro hardware in general. Yeah, you know, video and audio processing. Um, definitely. Yeah, you know, there was definitely some you know talking with one of our clients, debating between like an iMac Pro or or something of that caliber compared to Mac Minis to run their their builds because uh, they have a number of teams building at the same time. Um, yeah, I so, mean, I think no one no one's saying that Apple is going to make a ton of money when they release these Mac Pros. They're going to be way overpriced because so few people will buy them. But I think they're important to the to just kind of Apple's ecosystem that they that they exist. Well, that that pro market starts really getting diminished if they are underserved. Yeah, but, I mean, Apple has recognized this, and that's why last year and again now, you know, like. A couple of days ago, a week ago, they they invited some people in and say, hey, we're still working on this pro thing, but next year. And th- I mean, they never said that it would be a 2018 project product when they had their little roundtable thing last year. Uh, so no one we were all like, oh, it could be 2019. Ha ha ha. None of us thinking that it would actually be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I were to guess what their plans are. You know, if you kind of look at their strategy of not really having configurable hardware in the sense of um, the individual computer components, like the hard drives and, and the RAM, but instead having peripherals like eGPU and, and some other things. So, you know, you might be able to get a base Mac Pro for a lot cheaper, but then start adding all these modules on for what you need. I really doubt they're going to give us a cheap one, but that would be cool. Well, I guess cheap, cheap is relative. Like, um, yeah, instead of <laughs> so for two thousand dollars, you get the yeah. the headless box is just a some Xeon processors <laughs> and basic okay. memory, and then then you, and then you need the to pay a thousand dollars, and then yeah. add maybe uh, some other you know some external storage, and on and on and on. So you get the expansion without having an expandable. Uh, case. <laughs> so this is basically like a little box with some fans that are silent that have like 10 USB-C slash Thunderbolt 3 like full speed ports on the back like with massive bandwidth. That's, I, don't, I, I don't know. Like that's the only thing I can picture with modular outside of you know what they have today or, or what you know a typical PC uh high-end PC is like, but I don't know. I mean, I would I would pay for like a $2,000 Mac Mini that was kind of that thing, and then but I still I still want a good GPU. Apple Well, a good GPU, and like the pros have the Xeon processors, so you know, those have a much longer shelf life, but a much higher price tag. Yeah, what can see, yeah, I don't know. I'm torn on if that's what they're what they're aiming for, but I don't know. What do you think, Sam? Are you going to get the next Mac Pro? I do like the portability of a laptop, so no, uh, no, not not unless I somehow have the need to run twenty builds all in parallel. I'll be interested to see what comes out of it, but yeah, it's just it's not something that uh, I fit the target market for these days. I don't think. Yeah, maybe we just need the Mac Mini Pro. <laughs> <laughs> 
That'll, that'll solve everyone's problems and get Apple lots of money. Yeah, I wouldn't. Well, depending on what the, the price of a Mac Mini Pro would be, I wouldn't mind having a nice machine like that that I could just sit on my desktop and run various servers off of. The yeah. iMac Pro is is a decent machine. You know, performance wise, it's it's excellent. Price wise, it's debatable, but um, it's, it's just so hard to swallow that price tag, knowing that you can't upgrade it. And it's thousands of days old at this point. Yeah, it's. I think it's getting to the point where it's like a toddler graduating from preschool, maybe heading towards kindergarten. Maybe not quite that old, but really close. Yeah, I know we haven't. Our uh, Moore's law hasn't really been such a thing these days, but that's still for that price. And, and GPUs, it has been. Yeah, that's true. Right. So if you're if you're a gamer, the Mac Pro is probably the worst choice possible. If you're somebody who needs to render a lot of video, the Mac Pro is probably still not a good uh, good idea anymore. Yeah, I guess we're gonna have to see what happens, but I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's the bottom line for me. I'm scared. One yeah. arguably positive thing, hardware hardware related is you can now buy the Mac Pro um, the keyboard and mouse uh, separately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know why I can't think of the color. What's the color? The yeah. space gray. They're black. Space gray. Or space gray, yeah. Uh, there's about a, at least on the mouse, there's a $20 markup, I believe, between the <laughs> regular mouse and the space gray mouse. But it's better than the people who, like, marked them up a thousand dollars each on eBay when they came out. So, what about the the touchpads that got a pretty big markup too? I didn't check. I was in the store, uh, I guess, over the weekend and and took a look at it. They've got the full size keyboard, the touchpad, and the mouse. Um, I only looked at the price on the mouse. It was ninety nine dollars. It's also twenty dollars more. It looks like. Mm. Yeah. So you can get, you can have a fancy, sleek, whatever, you know, go to town. <laughs> right. Well, I already have the, the white trackpads <laughs> and my keyboard is a uh, Logitech keyboard that allows me to switch between various different Bluetooth devices, just a key press. So my desktop doesn't match at all at this point. I've got a pretty, pretty solid black theme going on, but I have the Logitech mouse that's black and the mechanical DOS keyboard with like a wheel for my volume and stuff. So it's definitely not like a svelte Mac Apple look. <laughs> and your command key is probably not even in the right spot. Or is it a Mac specific keyboard? Uh, it's in the right spot, but I had to swap the keys and uh, change something, some OS settings. But it's in the right spot doesn't have the right symbol, but it does not have a Windows symbol. It's like this generic DOS keyboard logo. So, oh. <laughs> eh, it works. Yeah. They do They do make a Mac-specific one, but I was at the store, and it was, like, on sale. So I just got it. But I like it. It's a nice keyboard. Yeah, I've never been one for mechanical keyboards. It's really interesting going between my, you know, full-height mechanical keyboard and then my... Uh, 13 inch touch bar MacBook Pro, 
with like the whatever those crazy switches are. It's it's a very different experience. <laughs> the butterfly switches. Yeah. It's a keyboard that takes a bit of getting used to, and I don't think you ever really fall in love with it. It's, I mean, it's 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 nice to not have to press that far, but there's something satisfying about like slamming down some keys on on the on the mechanical <laughs> keyboard. Yeah. Well, they're they're very loud too. For not traveling very far, the keys are very loud. I don't know what you're talking about, Sam. They're not very loud. <laughs> I meant on the MacBook Pros themselves. Is oh, those are loud? Hmm. Yeah, I think so. The The new one is louder than my old uh, 2013 one. Cool. So, uh, as we mentioned, 11.3 is out, and so is the 11.4 beta. We got some features that were pushed back. So the iMessages in the cloud and AirPlay 2 are as of recording time, both in uh, iOS 11.4 beta. I, I think they also have like HomePod uh, stereo speakers, uh, some level of support in there, but I don't think anyone has the HomePod firmware for that yet. So just just kind of those features that, you know, they talked about a long time ago and are getting delayed. Yeah. So it has to come out before June, right? Makes I you wonder. Sorry. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they just said, "Ah, we'll put this stuff in iOS 12. Why not?" <laughs> I mean, at this point, what's the point? Yeah. I mean, it does make you wonder if if all these features that have slipped for so long, and they're basically bumping into what's going to be iOS 12, if if that's taking away the the time for new iOS 12 development features. Yeah, maybe support for the Air Power Mat too. <laughs> <laughs> just Putting it out there, too. Yeah, it, I don't. I don't think that's currently in the beta, but that's another. Apple has done a great job of you know announcing things way ahead of time and then not delivering. It helps you appreciate kind of the old philosophy of all right, we've got this new thing and you can buy it today. <laughs> it's available yeah. today. I don't have. It's it's not as satisfying when they're like, oh, check out this cool new feature. Oh, that looks cool. You can use it in a year and a half. That was an old like Microsoft tactic. They would announce new features to kill off competitors really quickly. I mean, I think Apple did their last roundtable to you know get big businesses to buy iMac Pros because they have their budgets for the year, and if they don't spend them, they're probably gone. So looks like they're not buying Mac Pros. So let's you know get us a couple iMac Pros. Yeah, mm, no, makes I mean, sense. Well. Yeah, but Microsoft would yeah, I... announce new features that their competitors were uh, either already had or were going to come out with. And everybody would say, oh, well, we'll just not go buy WordPerfect or Lotus and we'll just wait for well, Word right, and yeah. Excel to get those things. And it would take a, a year or something. You pre-announced stuff. I mean, this is kind of why they announced the HomePod when they did. It's cause like, oh, crap, everybody's buying Amazon Echoes and Google Homes. Yeah. So we need to get something out there. And then, yeah, I mean, I feel like they've been doing that a lot lately. It's like, oh, this new thing's coming, or here's a, you know, very beta-y version of it. Right. You can do. <laughs> yeah, that's something that analysts are kind of 
bashing them about, and it's reflecting in their stock price. I I imagine it's something that kind of goes in waves. They'll get their act together, or they won't, and we'll all be Android developers in a few years. Shudder, huh? Speaking of which, um, I saw this article about uh, kind of, if you guys remember the 64-bit apocalypse that we had last year, there was an article that basically was talking about, for the first time ever, the number of iOS apps available in the App Store actually went down, whereas Google Play continued to rise because they didn't do any, like, quality checking of of apps or whatever. So have you guys been affected negatively at all by kind of the Apple's quality control? I mean, we lost a couple apps. We all were talking. We had 32-bit apps on our phones, and, you know, they've done some other measures to kind of limit uh, the the sheer number of apps on the app store. But I mean, almost a year out, like how do you guys feel things are going with regard to that? On the 64 bit front, the only impact that I saw was one of our clients had a legacy unity app that had to be updated to the latest version of unity in order to run. Um, and then we had another client uh, that was developed by a big tech company an app that was developed by a big tech company that needed to be updated to 64-bit. Took a little bit of work, um, but it was mostly third-party dependencies that had to be updated. Well, you gained a whole new client, too, as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, in some ways, it was good for us, but it, um, you know, they didn't necessarily get any value out of it other than they could continue to install and run an application that their business was fairly dependent on. Right. I mean, as a user of the app store, I don't, I feel like, I don't feel like it's gotten worse. Like, I don't feel like there's, Oh, there's this app that I really wanted, but it's not there anymore. So, I mean, I feel like overall, this is probably a positive change for me and Google's doing something similar. They've announced, you know, they announced pretty far out, but like starting, I think later this year, they're only going to accept apps that are targeting a certain SDK version. So maybe, Maybe it seemed like an actual a good thing that Apple did for for once lately. <laughs> uh, really, as a user, if the number of apps in the App Store goes from, say, 2.1 million to 1.9 million, are you really going to notice? <laughs> Is there a really strong chance you're going to notice that? Well, but it, it's it's reversing the change of, okay, there's 2.7 million and then there's 4 million and it's, right. it was already hard enough to find, you know, that app that you wanted. If you get rid of some of the cruft that's out there, then it seems to have been working out. Because I haven't, I haven't heard people complain. Oh, this thing that I needed is gone, or I can't find this app anymore, or whatever. Like that's not something that that I'm hearing from people. And maybe that's in my own little Apple bubble. I don't know. But I feel like there hasn't been a negative response to it that I've noticed anywhere and there's less apps which is better for app developers and it's good for people who are consultants because they have to update the apps i guess i'm just not seeing the downside of this one it seems like it's working out pretty well <laughs> <laughs> yeah and there's always a cost to being in the store at a minimum it's 99 dollars a year right as some years it's going to be bigger because you actually have to update your app it's it's always an ongoing investment you can't just throw it out there and be done with it. 
and by forcing updates on the apps, that gets more of the apps to, you know, support the new screen sizes that we've gotten and stuff, too, because they, you know, have added rules about that along the way as well. So I feel like overall it's probably done pretty good for even for users. Yeah. I don't see it as a negative thing. I don't see it as a huge positive. Yeah, no, no news a, is good news, right. and there's there's some tangible benefits to people like us. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, if if our listeners out there, if you do disagree with us on that one, you want to really complain at us, you can hit us up on our Slack channel at uh, chat.sharedinstance.com. We had some good discussions going on today just about the the privacy rules that that uh, Europe is enacting. So it's not a it's not a dead slack. I still don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, that'll be a topic for next time. So yeah, if you want to discuss that topic some more with us, uh feel free to drop in our Slack. And uh in the meantime, do you guys want to tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo. And I'm at Sam Corder. And I'll talk to you guys next time.